I love that song. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. You know, it's pretty, pretty interesting, actually. That particular song by Johnny Cash, it came out in an album after he died. In fact, seven years after Johnny Cash passed away, seven years of him lying in a grave near his home in Tennessee, this song is published on an album of him pointing to the one who the grave cannot hold, or the one that we gather together to remember this morning. Right? The Easter message is about a grave, right? but it's not about Jesus' death. It's about his resurrection. Right? Now, depending on where you're at in your spiritual journey, Christian or no, uh, the resurrection has always been met with a good bit of skepticism. And that was as true 2,000 years ago as it is today, right? Because even though they didn't have smartphones and they didn't have Google, they didn't have some of the scientific knowledge that we now have, they did understand as well as we do that when things go in the grave and things die, they stay there, right? That there's not very many things in this life that are absolutely final, but death is one of those things. And when some news began to spread that this Jesus who had died was up walking around again, they weren't really having it. Right? This Jesus that we watched die brutally. Right? The torture, the bleeding, the shredding, the piercing. That that Jesus whose body was so mangled is walking around like nothing ever happened. Right? Even those who were closest to him, even those who were there to, to witness many of the miracles during his life were skeptical at least at first, right? And this is actually the account, one of the accounts that we have. I just want to read this for you in Luke chapter 24. This is beginning in verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men with clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you himself this was going to happen when he was in Galilee. He said, The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified. But on the third day, ain't no grave can hold his body down. He's getting up. And then they remembered his words. And then listen to this. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, mother of, the, mother of James, and uh, others who were with them who told this to the apostles, but this was their response. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Peter, however, he got up and he ran to the tomb, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. It's fascinating right, that even those who were closest to Jesus, who knew him the best, were skeptical. They didn't believe him. The words sounded like nonsense. And so Peter wonders to himself what actually happened. Like any sane person, they're skeptical. I was on Facebook on Friday, and one of my buddies who's in law school was kind of laughing at the fact that today is not only Easter, it's also 420. And so he wondered to himself how Christians in Washington and Colorado might be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And one of his other buddies who's also in law school made an interesting comment. First of all, he said, well, I'm sure they'll have a better Good Friday than Jesus. But then he said, maybe they'll smoke enough pot to actually be able to believe the Easter story. The implication is it takes a lot of smoking to be able to accept something like this. And that's that that skepticism, you know? And so if if you feel that, you just need to know that's normal. Normal behavior. 
Right? See, depending on your background, uh, I grew up in a background where the first thing we do, right, is the pastor like me gets up on a stage like this, and I say something, and then you say something, right? And so I say, he is risen. Yeah, so you got it. And if, if you're new to church or that wasn't a part of your background, I'm sorry I threw that at you. It's like a s- secret church handshake. Um, now you got it. You're in the club. In fact, let's do it one more time. Just make sure you got it. He is risen. You're in the club, just like that. All right, but this is where we normally start on a morning like this, right, is the grave is empty, right? Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's celebrate. Let's talk about the theological nuances of what was accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. But this morning, what I want to do is I just want to take a step back. And I want to ask the question, why in the world believe that the resurrection ever happened in the first place? Because in a room like this, right, I know that there's a number of us, whether you consider yourself to be a Christian or no, Right, the struggle with this. They're like, okay, I can get on board with Jesus being a great teacher. Right? I can get on board with him being a passionate revolutionary, a brilliant mind, even a, a spiritual influential figure who ignited a global movement. I can buy all that. But being raised from the dead, I'm not so sure. Isn't it more likely that dot, 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 dot. Uh, so for the next 15 minutes in our time together, I want to address those isn't it more likelies. Right? And there's three big ones that I see and hear and run into a lot that, that get written about or they get talked about and they get thrown out there to dismiss the resurrection. And one, first of all, isn't it more likely a, a legend? Right? Something that just kind of developed over time from within the, the remaining followers of Jesus who remained after his death. Isn't it likely a legend? Right? Secondly, isn't it, isn't it maybe if it's not a legend, isn't it more likely a hoax? Right? Something that was just kind of fabricated for whatever reason by the early disciples. Or thirdly, isn't it more likely, if it's not a legend, it's not, it's not a hoax, isn't it more likely a metaphor, right? Something that's figurative and symbolic, maybe, of, of Jesus' life and his ministry or the message of the early church. And so that's, that's what I want to talk about for the next 15 minutes. And, and so you've got to put your thinking caps on if you're a high feeler. I apologize <laughs> this morning. Uh, but I want to I challenge you. Especially if, like me, you're a natural cynic, natural skeptic of things like this. All right, so number one, isn't it more likely a legend that developed over time? Right, it's a plausible argument. Legends develop all over, all, all over the place. They're a dime a dozen. They're in every culture, time and place. They, they get developed. You'll find examples of them all over the, the place. Right, isn't it likely that the resurrection is really just a legend that came to be over time? Right, a modern example of this in our own lifetime and would be uh, Davy Crockett. Right? You guys maybe grew up singing songs about him, especially if you're uh, the boomer generation. Right? Davy Crockett died in 1836, and we sing songs about him. There's the ballad of Davy Crockett, right? the chorus, Davy Crockett, Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. Right? So this is how that song begins. These are the words. Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, greenest state in the land of the free, Raised in the woods so he knew every tree. Killed him a bear when he was only three. I'm going to go ahead and cry foul on that one. Because I have a four-year-old. Right? Daughter. And I love her. But she's still scared of floating laundry lint. <laughs> Literally. You know? Like, she has, she has trouble, like, manhandling, like, a Nerf gun. Right, we'll play Nerf War. Like, one Nerf dart to the face. The game is over. Dad wins. Right? She's 25% older than old Davy Crockett. Did he really kill a bear when he's three? Like, no. I think all of us would agree. No. 
Of course he didn't. In fact, he wasn't even born on a mountaintop, we know. Right? But this is how legends work, right? A couple centuries now of developing this Davy Crockett, his legend. Things get bigger, right? So legends, typically, they take a lot of time. Those who study legends will tell you the same thing, right? A story gets told over and over and over. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's passed down from generation to generation. Every time it gets told, the fish gets a little bit bigger, right? The army that was defeated gets a little bit larger, Right? The odds become a little bit more overwhelming. The great act of heroism and courage becomes greater and greater and greater. And before you know it, it looks nothing like the original story. Right? So legends often take decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, to actually develop. And so Buddha, if you read any of the legends about Buddha, right, they're all after 500 years after his death. That's when those legends came to be. The same is true of Alexander the Great. The same is true of Plato. So you need lots and lots of time. When we read the Gospels, what you find in the message of Jesus is we don't have millennia, we don't have centuries, we don't even have decades and decades. You don't have enough time for a legend to, to develop. The very first person to write about Jesus was the Apostle Paul. And he was writing about the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, just 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death and supposed resurrection. So he's writing at a time, and he's, he's saying, look, you guys remember Pontius Pilate. And everybody knew Pontius Pilate. They, they were contemporaries of his. Right? He was writing, look, hey, you remember Caiaphas, the high priest. And everybody knew and remembered Caiaphas, the high priest. And he'd say, hey, you remember the tomb? You remember Joseph of Arimathea, who was a part of the Sanhedrin, which was like the supreme court of the ancient world? He's like, you remember those guys? And everybody knew because they were still alive. These, are, these were words that could easily, immediately go be either validated or rejected. Right? James, the brother of Jesus, still alive. Mary, the mother of Jesus, still alive. It's like, you don't believe me? Go talk to these guys. They were there. They saw it with their own eyes. Right? It happened very, very, very quickly. Right? So how do we make sense of 10 to 15, maybe max 20 years later, after some carpenter dies? That people are embracing a legend about him actually being God in the flesh? I don't think so. Right? You just don't have enough time for a legend to develop. And secondly, you don't have the culture either. Right? And you probably know this intrinsically, but when it comes to different cultures of people, some of them are much more open to legend making. Right? And so I've shared before, you know, I've, I've done some traveling down to the Dominican Republic and worked with Haitian refugees. And if you ever go to Haiti, right, one of the things you find is they... They believe in ghosts and visions and spirits, right? They have occult practices. They believe in the afterlife where you can actually interact with the dead while you're living, right? And so it doesn't take a lot of imagination. And in a culture like this, it's pretty easy for legends to begin to develop and emerge. But there's other cultures that are very resistant to legend making, right? We would be one of those. Very skeptical, very rational, very scientific, right? We're just not very open to legend making. Unless, I mean, disregard the tabloids. Other than the tabloids, I still don't know who buys those things. If you're here, I'll, we'll pray for you too, right? But on the most part, we're not a culture that's open to legend making. Here's the thing. When you look at the early first century uh, Judaism and the, the Palestinian area where Christianity was birthed, they were so against legend making. Right? They, these were very entrenched religious people who would fight for their religion. Right? They believe in the Torah. They believe in the prophets. They believe in the Old Testament. And you challenge any of those things and they'll take you out. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus got killed. Very, very resistant to legend making, especially a legend with a blasphemous claim that a man could actually be God. 
right? So you don't have the culture, right? You don't have the makings, right? You don't have the time for a legend to develop, all right? So I submit to you the legend theory, it just doesn't work. It doesn't hold any water, all right? So secondly, maybe it's a hoax, right? Maybe the whole thing is just something that the disciples fabricated and made up, Right, because that does happen throughout human history, right? People make up lies, they make up hoaxes, they make up conspiracy theories. You find evidence of that all over the place. All right, one example, uh, Galvin. Oh no. You see that? That was smooth. I'm really bad at these things. This is why you'll find me with a handheld on Sunday morning. A gal by the name of Ursula Shipton. She was a 15th century seer, cult seer, who has had kind of a reputation in England for being able to foresee things that were coming. Uh, in the future, and there's a, a definitive book that her prophecies were published in in 1851, and in the book, this gal, back in the 15th century, is making prophecies about one day, right, people are going to fly through the air in metal birds. You know, in one day, they're going to float on the water on metal boats, and they'll actually be able to go underwater inside metal fish, and one day, there's going to be cars that don't need, or chariots that don't need horses, They'll be connected together to one another and ride without horses, right? And people will be able to talk to one another over hundreds of miles away. These are some of her prophecies. And that the world would end in 1881, right? So you can't get them all right, you know? Give her a break, right? But this book is published, and people freak out. It causes mass hysteria all over Europe where it's published because people are asking, how in the world does this woman from the 15th century know all of these things, Right, because at this time, right, you already had lo- locomotives. People are already talking about cars. There's already some initial diagrams for planes that are out there. People, we already had metal boats. And so people are like, okay, she was right on all this stuff. The world is going to end in 20 years. So people are freaking out. And, of course, the book becomes a bestseller. Right, and two years later, the man who actually published the book, when hysteria was at its highest, he comes out, a guy by the name of Henley, and he confesses that he made the thing up. Right, that he took those prophecies and he actually snuck them into, into her own. Right, and this is usually how hoaxes work. Right? It happens. So is it possible that the resurrection of Jesus was just one of these things? Right, just a few thoughts to throw you away. First of all, if the disciples were professional swindlers and their whole job, their role, was to, to create this hoax, they were really bad at their job. Right, one of the reasons I say that is they made the mistake of in the gospel accounts, if they wrote these things to kind of throw everybody off, they made the mistake of making all the early witnesses women. Right? And if you know anything about the first century, sadly, women were not valued. They were not honored at all. In fact, in court, uh, the witness of a woman in both the Jewish court and the Roman court uh, was inadmissible. In fact, Josephus said this. He said, even the witness of multiple women is not acceptable because of, ladies, because of the levity and boldness of their gender. I would take that as a compliment. He doesn't mean it that way, but that's what he says. Right? Celsus, who was a second century critic of Christianity, criticized the idea of Mary Magdalene being one of the witnesses of the resurrection, and he refers to her as a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. All right, so if you're going to make something up in the first century like this, you would never put women down as the, the early witnesses. You would never do it because it makes it implausible to all of your readers and hearers. Immediately, they can discredit it and push it aside. Right? It would be like if you were trying to create an alibi for yourself and get away with something in court, right? and you paid some people off 
to give you this alibi, but all the people you chose to hire have criminal records for bearing false witness in court. Right? It wouldn't give you more credibility. It would give you a lot less credibility. People would immediately reject it. Right? But the early Gospels, all of them say that the first witnesses were women, which makes absolutely no sense if you're trying to create, if you're trying to create a lie. All right, so if they're liars, they're bad ones. All right, secondly, and I'll just put this in your court, ask the question, what would the motivation be? Because if you're, if you're creating a hoax, there's always a motivation. If it's not money, it's fame, right? It's power, it's reputation, something of like that kind of sort. So what is the motive of the early disciples? Because here's the thing that they knew and that we know from history is that this was not a popular message. In fact, in this particular part of the world, this was a very blasphemous message. This wasn't going to make their life sweeter. There was no Christian culture, so they weren't going to make a bunch of money selling you know, tacky t-shirts in the name of Jesus or anything like that. Right? What would the motive be? This was, and this, was, this was going to get them hurt if not killed. And in fact, of course, we know that 10 of the 11 actually were killed for bearing and sharing this message. Some of them stood there and watched as their children were murdered and tortured in front of their eyes, and then the sword was turned on them. Right? What, would the, what would the motive be? Why on earth would they do that? Right? And then thirdly, if they did, and we don't know the motive, but let's just say they actually did make all this up. Are you seriously going to tell me that in the face of death that none of them went back on their word? Right, as they were about to die, as their kids were tortured and killed, as their family and friends were killed in front of their faces, many of them mangled in the same way Jesus was. Are you going to tell me that all of them took that lie to the grave? Right, because here's the thing about hoaxes. When it gets inconvenient, when it's no longer paying off, people get really honest. It's an amazing thing. Right, so in the Book of Mormon, right, there's three witnesses who supposedly saw the angel Moroni give the golden tablet, tablets to Joseph Smith. Right? But when persecution broke out against the Mormons because of their polygamous practices, two of the three witnesses rescinded their testimony. Said, okay, just kidding. I take it back. Right? When people, this is the way hoaxes work. Right? When it goes and gets tough and gets dangerous, people get really, really honest. You're going to tell me that none of the early Christians did this if they're making this up. Because we don't have any record of any of them going back on their word and saying, hey, I'm sorry, we were having a bad day. It was a bad idea. We thought it was a good business opportunity, and so we made it up. Not one. In a culture where they had many, many enemies who wanted desperately to discredit their message. You're going to tell me not even one gets honest on their deathbed saying, you know what? It wasn't true, and we're sorry. Right? And so I would suggest to you, it can't be a lie. Right? So if it can't be a legend, and it can't be a lie... The third one that I hear oftentimes is what if the resurrection of Jesus was really just figurative? Right? What, what if it was a symbolic message that they were sharing, right? A metaphor of Jesus' message and his life and the ministry of the early church. Is that possible, right? So when I was a freshman and sophomore in college, I took classes just a few blocks from here at the university and took some religion courses, comparative religions. And I loved learning about the different faiths. But when it came to Christianity, what the professor taught us was that this was the case, right? That they were metaphors, right? That the resurrection of Jesus, it didn't actually happen. It was more of like a, a symbol of these higher truths. 
And so all the stories about Jesus that are told in the Gospels, about him eating and dining with his disciples and showing himself to them and doing these different things, those were all metaphors, right? They didn't actually happen, right? So going back to Luke 24, right, there's a story of Jesus walking with a couple of his disciples and he shares a meal with them and he opens his mind to them on the road to Emmaus about the scriptures, right? And this is, this is just a to give you kind of a quote of this kind of scholarly idea that sometimes they try to push it to the side. This is what John Dominic Cross, and this is how he puts it about the road to Emmaus. Emmaus never happened. Emmaus always happens. Right, and so Emmaus never actually physically happened, but the truth that's being communicated here, it always happens. Right, Jesus didn't actually appear to these two, but we get this sense, you know, that Jesus is with them and that there's hope for life and forgiveness in the midst of death and disappointment. Right, but when you read the Gospels, and I challenge you to do this, you start reading these accounts, you just find yourself asking, you've got to be kidding me. These are not written metaphorically or like vision literature. I'll give you an example of this. And you tell me, what is the higher spiritual truth that's being communicated here? This is Jesus, Luke 24 again. While they were still talking about this, Jesus stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe him because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? (laughs) Which I love. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. So you tell me, what is the higher spiritual truth that's being communicated here? Jesus eating fish and chips with his disciples. Right? What is this? The whole point of this is Jesus saying, look, I am not a symbol. I am not a metaphor. I am not a ghost. Look at me. Touch me. Put your finger in my side. Pass the sushi. I'm hungry. I'm here. This is real. Right? This is the whole point of the text. Right? There's no higher metaphorical vision reality going here. It's trying to just show us, look, this really happened. Jesus in the, fr- in the flesh. Right? But Aaron, I had a, I had a professor or I heard an interview or I saw a video or read a book that suggested that the Gospels don't really suggest, they don't say that Jesus is divine, that he was God, that Jesus didn't understand himself that way, and that the disciples didn't understand him that way. Is that a possibility? So I was watching actually a video this week that uh, one of our community members shared on Facebook, and it was of Stephen Colbert. I love Stephen Colbert. God rest his soul as he takes over for David Letterman. I'm going to miss the Colbert report desperately. Right, but he's sitting down with a scholar who is suggesting this very thing. That Jesus didn't understand himself to be divine. The disciples didn't understand him to be divine. That's just something that the church came up with. Right? And, and Colbert did a really good job of dismantling his argument with common sense and making it really funny in the process. Right? But I just wanted to shake this guy and be like, you've got to be kidding me. How many theological gymnastics do you have to do to convince yourself of this? Right? And I have, I have all these different notes, right? And so let's just, for example, let's just, let's just set aside all the parts where Jesus says, I am the Son of God. And let's set, apart, set aside, you know, things when Jesus says, like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. All right, let's put those aside. And I just want to read for you, on the other side of the resurrection, this is how the disciples respond to the risen Jesus. 
going back to Luke 24. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, and he told them, look, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, and on the third day he will rise. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name all over the world, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And then get this, verse 52. This is how they respond. Then they worshipped him. Then they worshipped him. Does it sound like they're fuzzy on whether or not Jesus is actually divine? Right? Remember, this is in a culture where these Jewish people have such reverence for God, they wouldn't even dare utter his name aloud. They wouldn't even write his name down on paper. The modern equivalent, they would write G-D because they were so, he was so holy and otherworldly, they wouldn't dare utter him out loud or write down his name. And they fall down on their face before Jesus, worshiping him as the Lord. Right, so you can't tell me that Jesus didn't think he was divine or the disciples didn't think he was divine. And so friends, in wrapping up, all right, the early church did not set out to start a religion and they didn't present the resurrection of some symbolic, fuzzy, ethereal kind of reality. Like we sort of feel Jesus in this place. He's risen. Right? But they preached it as a hard reality that actually happened, that we are eyewitnesses of this event and friends if it can't be a legend. And if in fact it cannot be a lie, then that has to mean that it actually happened. And if it actually happened and Jesus rose from the dead, then that changes everything because what it means is that everything that Jesus said is actually true. Right? And so when Jesus says things like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, then we actually find in the Gospels that God is not a wrathful, vengeful, monster God who loves to dish out punishment and is waiting for you to screw up. Right? But we find a God who loves and prays for his enemies as they murder him. That that is actually what God is really like. We find that when Jesus says things like, my grace is sufficient for you, that it's all grace, that God, the way God feels for you is not, it, it doesn't depend on your performance or lack thereof. Not in your past, not today, not in your future. It is simply grace. It is simply the love of God. Right When Jesus says things like, look, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That means that on this day we remember and we realize the truth that you can actually be forgiven once and for all. Period. Right? You don't have to earn it. You never could. Debt has been paid in full. Redeemed to God through what Jesus did, not through anything that you do. Right? When Jesus says things like, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full, right? Then we realize, oh my goodness, he was telling the truth. Right? That in Jesus, we can actually have full life, abundant life, real life, eternal life through him. Right? We recognize that in him, we don't have to fear death. Right? Because he rose from the dead, and those are who are in him. One day when this life is over, right? That grave, ain't no grave gonna hold our body down. That we're gonna rise with him. That there's nothing about this life that we will miss because it is being redeemed and restored and transformed through what Jesus did on the cross. Right? When Jesus says things like, you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, 
no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, then that also means the opposite is also true, that everyone who comes to him comes before the Father and can come before the Father with confidence. Right? We find that in him we can be saved. Like today. Like right now. By John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his own only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish right, but have everlasting life starting today. Right, John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned. That means that that is an invitation that still stands. Right? It's a message that has been proclaimed on the lips of millions upon millions beginning on a day 2,000 years ago. And this morning, as we gather, millions upon millions upon millions of the loved, saved, and redeemed gather to remember <laughs> this event. Oh, this is awesome. Are we videotaping this? Perfect. So here's the thing. I can't think of anything that is more of a cause for celebration. Or that death has been defeated. That the consequences of all those shortcomings, the skeletons in your closet and in mine, right, those memories that still make you start to sweat, the things you wish you could go back and do differently, the things that alienate us from God, that those things have no sway anymore on the other side of the cross. Because when God looks at us, he doesn't see just a sinner, a broken piece of trash, which is what I am without Jesus. But he sees Jesus. What Jesus did on the cross. All right, so if you're here this morning, and this is never a message that you've responded to, you've never thought about this, you've never owned this for yourself, very simply, as we close in prayer, I want to give you a chance to do just that. All right, so if you would, let's bow our heads. And if you have never responded to Jesus, if you have never said, Jesus, you are my Lord and King, save me, forgive me, then that starts with a very, very simple prayer. And the words are not what matters. Change them if you want to. But just pray along with me. Lord God, I recognize that I can't save myself. I have regrets and things that I wish I could do differently. Times in which I know that I jacked up. But I am choosing to trust what Jesus accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. I'm asking for forgiveness and I'm acknowledging Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Save me. Save me. You got to know if you pray that prayer and you surrender your heart to Jesus, if that's something that you did, or if that's something you need to do later on today, right? If Jesus did in fact rise from the dead and no grave could hold him down, when he said, it is finished, it means it is finished. Right? It's grace, period. It's not grace plus 
going to church every Sunday, Grace Plus, reading your Bible every day. Those things are great, but that's not what saves you. It's what Jesus did on the cross. It's why Jesus went to the cross. And the radical, irritating message to the religious elite in Jesus' day was that now God was breaking down all the walls and now the worst of sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, you name it, that now there's a place at the table for them. Or that this was a message for every person on the face of this earth. Those farthest from God, those lives so far from Him, that now there's a place for them around the table, that God's love is for them too. If only they will bend the knee and acknowledge Him as Lord. And so here's what we are going to do this morning. We want to end, we're going to close in worship, and we're also going to take communion. And one of the things that Jesus said to His disciples before He left and ascended into heaven is He said, do this in remembrance of Me. Remember the sacrifice that I made. But don't just remember that I was buried and that I died. But remember that I live, that I offer life today, and that if you are in me, then I am in you. And so this morning, if you are making a decision to trust your life to Jesus, maybe for the first time, maybe you've been following him for a long time, maybe it's a decision you made a long time ago, but you've been away from church for whatever reason, well, then you're invited to come up. There's no confirmation class. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be confirmed. It means you're a new creation right now. In God's eyes, what he has begun in you has already begun. And in Jesus' words, when it comes to God's grace and love, it is finished.